This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Backlash to begin. The police killings continue like clockwork. The Washington Post reported that 2021 broke the record for fatal police shootings since the newspaper began tracking them in 2015. And how often do police kill? Craig Gilmore and Ruth Wilson Gilmore answer, once every eight hours, all we might say in a day's work. And since the 2020 uprisings, the police redeemers have been very hard at work too. They were, after all, facing a massive legitimacy crisis. And this is the legitimacy, not just of policing, but the entire system of social relations that they enforce. During and in the two years since the uprising, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, the Fraternal Order of Police, the Police Executive Research Forum, have continually offered self-assessments that they were woefully underprepared for the summer 2020 demonstrations. Their answer, more funding for community engagement, more training, and specifically a slew of new policies on how to regulate so-called less lethal weapons and maneuvers like chokeholds, rubber bullets, and tear gas. The Business Roundtable has also been hard at work, putting forward in July 2020 their own principles for ideal police reform. Real estate has been very hard at work, redeeming cops and tough prosecutors, buying Eric Adams away in as New York City mayor, and pushing Chase Bodine out of San Francisco. And lawmakers have gone to work, too, at the federal level, unleashing the federal funds, and at the state level, one year following the murder of George Floyd. They're not very consequential, but they're high in number, 243 policing bills out of state legislatures. So in this talk, I, I want to try and just um, map some of what I see as some of the trends. This is a talk that's in some ways just trying to name the problems. Um, I hope collectively we can have a kind of conversation that's about um, how and where to intervene. Um, but this is actually sort of an, an analytical mapping project for now. Um, so the kinds of trends that we're seeing, first to say the obvious that's worth saying, we are getting um, serious upticks in law and order that are just pure iron fist. As I heard from the Dream Defenders on Friday, what we're seeing is a wave of retribution against people working for their liberation. Florida is one of three states that have green-lighted drivers to hit protesters. Florida is also one of three states that have escalated new penalties for damaging a public monument. And Florida is one of five states that have expanded definitions and penalties for rioting. Um, lawmakers have also created enhanced penalties for obstructing streets, 
sidewalks, and what they call the critical infrastructure of gas and oil pipelines. This is just the official line of criminalization in the official statutes. We also have to pay attention to the vast waves of violence and repression that have already happened. This is what it means to take people out. It means you take people out. I know it's described as peaceful protests. 17,000 people arrested within a couple weeks. Largest mass protest since the Vietnam War. We are also in a massive wave of the criminalization of reproductive autonomy, an increase in the official criminalization of trans children as lawmakers have lassoed teachers, social workers, and nurses into a massive anti-trans surveillance network, the banning of any mention of systemic racism in at least 17 states, the so-called critical race theory bans, and in at least 21, and in 2021, at least 19 states passed 34 laws to restrict access to voting, meaning that state legislatures enacted far more restrictive voting laws in 2021 than in any year since 2011, a finding that actually has even the Brennan Center wringing its hands and freaked out. And yes, I include all of that in criminalization because propelling voter restrictions are a buffet of racist criminalized stock characters, the Chinese tech conspirators, the illegal votes from people described as illegal, and the stolen votes of majority black and brown urban areas like Philadelphia and Detroit. Now, these are just some of the reforms that make 2020 to 2022 banner years of open repression, policies that are um, sort of openly passed in the name of celebrating white nationalism, heteropatriarchy, and Christian supremacy. But I also, as I want to do, want to focus on other kinds of um, mass criminalization and repressive force. Um, there are a range of repressive policies that are not so much a frontal attack on movements as they are a form of elites fortifying the criminal legal system through a rhetoric of recognition. And here's where I want to talk about um, the idea that elites are trying to reduce the movement for black lives into a victim rights campaign. This struck me when I heard Nancy Pelosi deliver this gem of maudlin politicking after a Minneapolis jury delivered three guilty verdicts to the cop who killed George Floyd. Thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice, for being there to call out to your mom how heartbreaking that was. What tortured logic, as if George Floyd submitted to his own death willingly to bequeath the criminal legal system the opportunity to find his murderer guilty of murder. But to students of law and order politics, there was an eerie familiarity to the spectacle of politicians thanking murder victims and angling to get photo ops with surviving family members. And when the House introduced the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, I thought of all those incarceral, carceral enactments named to honor murder victims. Jacob Wetterling law that establishes the so-called sex offender registry, Megan's law that makes those registries um, public, Jessica's law that started in Florida and spread through the country for more mandatory minimums, the Amber Alerts that you get on your phone named for Amber Hagedorn, um, the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. hate crime penalties. We also have to remember that um, Pete Wilson was facing uh, probably an imminent loss did he not spend his year campaigning 
um, for three strikes while simultaneously eulogizing um, polyclass. What we witness is a form of no murder in vain grandstanding. This is a standard tactic of the 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s. It has been reserved for white crime victims, especially a particular, um, a particular bracket of white women and girls, uh, what Beth Ritchie has called in some places the white everywoman. But apparently scenes of aristocrats feeling the pain of their subjects makes for good TV. And so like Bridgerton, the politics of victims' rights is open to colorblind casting. <laughs> Centering the most marginalized is a mantra of contemporary anti-racism, and it should be. This is a potentially transformative call if we can keep in mind that so-called identity politics are anchored in the radical Marxist politics of the Kambahi River Collective, as Kiangi Amata Taylor and Olafemi Taiwo remind us. But lawmakers are tailoring this potentially transformative radical lingua franca to fit an old carceral playbook. And the move goes like this, from the most and intersectionally marginalized to the victim who can only be a crime victim. And that's the channel of recognition that we're seeing. Elites are channeling movement-based structural challenges into the criminal legal system to be remediated or addressed at all. Every grievance has to fit the size of a criminal charge and the shape of a criminal trial. And I wanna give a few examples. Texas's Sandra Bland Act of 2017. The law named for Sandra Bland, driving from Chicago to Houston in 2015 to start a new job at her alma mater, when a Texas state trooper pulled over the 28-year-old black woman for allegedly failing to signal. After threatening to, quote, light her up with his taser, the trooper pinned Bland to the ground, arrested her for a Class C misdemeanor, and unable to pay the $500 fine, Sandra Bland was jailed and three days later found dead. By the time Governor Abbott signed the Sandra Bland Act, its strongest provisions pertain to jail monitoring and mental health, and it provides modest funding for jails to install cameras and electronic sensors for head counts and suicide checks. If you Google Sandra Bland Act, the first page has several surveillance companies that are selling ID tags and scannable wrist brands with the promise of making jails in industry parlance Sandra Bland compliant. The act's emphasis on mental health implies that Sandra Bland suffered from psychological instability rather than police massage noir. Other examples, the regulations on so-called no-knock warrants, sometimes called Brianna's Law, for Brianna Taylor, an EMT, an aspiring nurse who'd fallen asleep after watching a movie at home when, when Louisville Metro Police burst in with a no-knock warrant, opened fire, and killed the 26-year-old black woman. Restrictions on the no-knock warrant have been some of the most popular reforms of the last two years. What's thought of as the most rigorous regulation, like Louisville Metro's Council's Brianna's Law, requires police to follow certain protocols while executing a search. They have to knock and wait 15 seconds. I just want to be clear. When you hear the phrase, we banned the no-knock warrant, 
this is what the protocol is demanding in its best form. Knock and wait 15 seconds before entering, wear body cameras, act, they have to be activated for at least five minutes before, and you have to retain the recordings for five years. At least 11 states have enacted the body cam requirements for executing warrants, and that's how they decided to uh, regulate these kinds of um, um, bust and kill entries. This also puts police in an extra good position to use Brianna's law as justification for more capital outlays. We know that liberal frameworks tend to see police killings as excess or error, but rather is witnessing them as excess or error. We should imagine, um, I think we have to just take a minute to name some of the baseline functions that police are performing when they enact this kind of killing. Just what's the foundation? So I want to say the first one, it might sound basic, which is that Brianna Taylor was, um, she was killed in her home. So as Kimberly Crenshaw, Andrea Ritchie, and so many from AAPF Say Her Name campaign have pointed out, the police authority to enter homes, to regulate the homes for poor and working class women, and in particular black women, mean that there is no zone of privacy which anyone is required to respect. As a black woman killed in her home, Breonna Taylor is in the company of Eleanor Bumpers, Katherine Johnston, Tariqa Wilson, so many more. And let's name the pretext. Police bust in with city-ordered eviction notice. They come to collect late rent. They come when the utility bill isn't paid. They come when the algorithm shows a red flag for alleged child abuse. They come as first responders to mental health crises, and they handle potential suicides by beating someone to the punch. The second precondition we should notice is that the killing of Breonna Taylor took place in, in, in the course of, of another police function, which is forcing people off the land, gentrification, sometimes called Negro removal. As Robin D.G. Kelly has pointed out, Kelly was killed by cops that were part of the place-based investigation unit, which was established in Louis, um, to clear Louisville streets for demolition and redevelopment. And in this sense, Breonna Taylor's murder is linked to the plans of real estate developers and the cops who serve them, not the so-called accidents of botched raids. Other victims' right-ish legislation, the chokehold ban, sometimes called the Eric Garner Act or the George Floyd Act, both of whom were definitely killed by police, although amongst the experts who like to play in the necropolitics, there is no consensus that they were killed by chokeholds, hence the title of Derek Purnell's editorial, The George Floyd Act Wouldn't Have Saved George Floyd's Life. Other examples of the culture of victims' rights, celebrating criminal convictions as if that means standing with black families, as if that means standing with all black people. If 2020 was the year of taking the streets, then 2021 became the year of taking cops to court. And in 2021, a record high of 21 cops were charged for on-duty manslaughter and murder. This is, in fact, actually un. I don't know, it's like the number is unprecedented, I don't know what to say. But convictions for killer cops are exceedingly rare because criminal courts protect police as an integral part of the uh, carceral system. And perhaps it's this against all odds dynamic that makes it so easy for elites to reduce a struggle for liberation to a courtroom procedural drama. The revolution will not be televised, but there are good Nielsen ratings for the rare spectacle of a cop on trial. 
and at least 23 million people turned in to watch the Chauvin verdict, which President Biden and other elites used as their we have overcome moment. Ditto for the conviction of Ahmaud Aubrey's killers when Biden announced that the guilty verdicts reflect our justice system doing its job. A particularly odd statement if you know anything about the Ahmaud Aubrey case. These are some examples of how a shallow politics of recognition is serviceable to the great redemption of the criminal legal system. And it's the same politics of recognition that's happening in the renewed attention to crime rates, especially homicide rates and gun violence, and homicide rates are up. And liberal elites are financing police through the message, fund the police because black lives matter. Even though Divest Invest has a lineage in black freedom struggles, liberal elites reacted as though Defund was born and baptized in the fires of Minneapolis's burning police precinct. Democratic operatives and black elites won headlines for challenging the wisdom of defunding police, and more specifically, for question, questioning its racial progeny. Where did this cousin of BLM come from, and are you even black? Here, it's instructive to consider some claims to black authenticity that have manifested in other terrains of struggle. So for example, when in Georgia, pro-reproductive rights and anti-abortion groups both claimed to truly represent the interests of black women, the competing groups vouched for authenticity by doing two things. First, they point to the white people on the other side. And second, they claim embodied authenticity by pointing out the black women representatives who were on their side. And Democratic Party mobilizations to drive up police funding use both of these tactics, which is discrediting defund as a movement of white people and crediting police funding as endorsed by embodied black representatives. This latter tactic is similar to, or maybe it just is, what Olufemi Taiwo calls deference politics which is the call to center the most marginalized, means handing over controversial, uh, conversational authority and intentional goods to whoever is already in the room and appears to fit a social category associated with the, the same form of oppression. And in the context of police co-optation of anti-police demands, this means showing deference to the voices already in the halls of power, especially black lawmakers and the rising number of black police chiefs. You probably heard that Newark's Democratic Mayor Roz Baraka called defund a bourgeois liberal, a bourgeois liberal nonsense. Al Sharpton has repeatedly called it something that a liberal latte may go for as they sit around the Hamptons discussing an academic problem. And in case anyone missed the implicit rich whiteness of lattes and beach houses, he added that poorer and blacker people, blacker and poorer, blacker and poorer folks know that quote people on the ground need proper policing. The New York Times deserves a prize for surrealist reporting over the last two years that continually suggests that Democrats would actually love to pursue radical police reform, but they're being held back by their black base. This started in summer 2020 with the asked and answered headline, who opposes defunding NYPD? These black lawmakers. Paper of Record also reported a black councilwoman in Brooklyn who compared calls to defund the police to colonization pushed by white progressives. 
In short, defendant abolition represent a form of white privilege and colonization that Democrats are dutifully attending to to protect the real interests of black and brown people on the ground. This story has only gotten louder as homicide rates have risen. Earlier this summer, we read that Democrats are facing pressure on crime from a new front, their base. Not long ago, the party was focused on police reform, but because of rising fears of violence, especially among, communi especially among communities of color, the candidates had to change course. And this focus on freshly minted numbers, homicide rates up, crime rates up, also Democratic election prospects tenuous, makes it seem like defund just got an unlucky roll of the dice. There's nothing so breezy to the politics of police funding. Rather, the politics of police funding is set in the deep grooves of the racism of neoliberalism, of fiscal federalism, and the Democratic Party's abandonment of cities and rural areas, which is kind of just me saying everywhere. The Democratic Party's <laughs> abandonment of, of all municipalities. I didn't start my timer. Okay. So, these deep grooves, just to say a little bit about them, as you heard last night from Ruth Wilson Gilmore, wherever inequality is deepest, prisons and police prevail as the catch-all solution to social problems. This pattern holds at a variety of scales. It holds worldwide. It holds when you do state-level comparisons. And when you look at cities in the U.S., we can see that less spending on social services accompanies more spending on police budgets. But there's this, another dimension, which is just the less money that municipalities have, the greater percentage that they spend on police. These are the forces driving austere policing, policing the austere municipalities. Less revenue coming from the federal government, as well as, as slimmer tax receipts, slashed government jobs and slashed services, which in turn strengthen police vis-a-vis -vis other public employees and leads police to contain the deepening inequality. In short, given the conditions of neoliberalism, financially strapped cities rely on policing to contain austerity's carnage. Cities rely on direct federal aid. Cities rely on direct federal aid. This is, this is just, cities were like, they can't, they're not allowed to tax. The best they can do to tax is just push regressive fees down the line, criminal justice fees and fines, but all kinds of like, you want to cross a bridge, pay $12. In 1977, the average city's revenue, about 18% of it came from federal force, federal funds. It's now hovering around 4 to 5%. Devolution operates through a fiscal federalism of disciplining down, taking away federal lifeboats and redistributive funds and telling cities and municipalities to sink and swim with little more than unpredictable state aid, property taxes that have been destroyed by tax revolts and regressive sales taxes. This imperative of municipal self-sufficiency entrenches a local politics of defunding, downsizing and privatizing public goods. But feds, and I will say, Dem sorry, Democrats in particular have been very mindful about throwing down federal aid to bail out the police specifically. This is their lineage. 
the Clinton administration shut down a variety of funding programs that were crucial to city government, and while starving low-income residents started funneling in more money for police, creating the COPS program with the initial proposal that we're seeing again today, 100,000 more cops on the street. This is why, as historian Donna Murch writes of the Reagan, Bush, and especially the Clinton years, incarceration became a de facto urban policy for impoverished communities of color in America's city. Af cities. After the Great Recession of 2008, President Obama and the Democratic-controlled Congress did throw a bit of a lifeline to state and local governments through the Recovery Act of 2009, but they really earmarked money specifically for police. They reinvigorated two funding programs that were on the precipice of, probably not fair to say precipice of collapse, but they had been cut considerably in funding. And those two programs are the, the Burn Justice Assistance Grants, the Burn JAG program, and COPS, which Republicans never liked. By way of comparison, I'll just say that the Recovery Act allocated some money for school construction, the way it allocated some money for highways because logistics was uh, pushing them to, uh, to do so, some money for school repairs, but none for teacher salaries, none earmarked, but, but you're getting at least $5 billion earmarked for COP salaries in the Obama legislation. This is the history we should keep in mind as we watch Biden put forward the most robust legitimacy, police legitimacy campaign that we've seen in 50 years. And when witnessed through the lens of partisanship, Biden's fund the police directive is seen as defensive maneuvering. But who cares? This misses the material significance of the funding, which is in the midst of a sustained, hard-won, necessary, big and beautiful crisis of police legitimacy. Federal aid is coming down the pike to help police secure the two fundamentals that they need to do the job. They need the hardware and they need staffing. And the less legitimacy they have, the more they need of both. And that's what's being handed down. Let's start with hardware. That's The hardware money has come specifically from the COVID rescue monies. So you probably recall in his March 2022 State of the Union, Biden won applause for saying that $350 billion of rescue money um, should be used for states and localities to fund their police. And this spend-it-all suggestion was um, obviously disingenuous, given that places already had spent more than half of um, the federal aid. Thankfully for doing things like not firing sanitation workers um, and uh, um, you know trying to actually give out some unemployment insurance. So they didn't spend it all on police, even though Biden uh, encouraged them to, but they have been spending a lot of money on the one-off hardware. They've been buying drones, automated license plate readers, armored vehicles, patrol cars, surveillance cameras, SWAT, SWAT rifles. Um, they've been giving out lots of bonuses to police. They've been buying shot spotter, body cameras, tasers. Chicago spent more than one-fifth of its COVID aid on policing, Los Angeles spent about half of its aid on the LAPD. And that's just the hardware part. There wasn't a lot of that money used for new hiring for reasons we could talk about if you want. And police have been um, ramping up the pressure to get more federal aid 
for mass hirings, which is what Biden has offered in his 2023 proposed budget, an additional $13 billion for 100,000 new cops. All of this is happening through a language of supporting cops so that they can support black communities. Okay. I want to say a few things about the crime rate. So, crime rates are up. Homicide rates are definitely up. You might know if you follow any thing. <laughs> that there's a lot of talk about how the crime rate is not an especially good measure. And I want to review um, some of those reasons. And then I want to talk about why I'm not necessarily a fan of talking about why the crime rate is such a bad measure. So you've probably heard all of the following, but I, I like talking, so I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> the crime rate is a legal construct. It's variable in every way, except that it's defined by the powerful. In this set of definitions, small-scale masterminds of murder like Charles Manson die in San Quentin, well, Henry Kissinger is invited to give guest lectures at Harvard. This point is made sharply in a classic text that I strongly encourage you to read now. The text is from 1975, and it's called The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove, written by the Center for Research on Criminal Justice. This is a long quote on how they explain crime, and I'm going to read it to you. If any of the language sounds dated, this is 1975, although I kind of think it still sounds awesome. So here it is. The most violent and socially harmful acts in the history of the US have been carried out by the government and the wealthy rulers of the corporate economy. Whether measured in human lives or dollars, these acts constitute the most severe crimes of all, though they are not labeled as such in the criminal codes. The, overwhelm, the overwhelming number of killings in the 1960s were committed by the U.S. armed forces in Southeast Asia. The largest thefts in U.S. history were carried out by the U.S. government against the lands of Mexicans and various Native American tribes. The most brutal kidnapping since blacks were forced into slavery was carried out by the U.S. government against Japanese Americans in the 1940s when they were stripped of their belongings and held in camps during World War II. Perhaps most importantly, the process of getting rich off the labor of other people, far from being considered a crime, is the basis of normal economic life in the US, and people who do it successfully have great prestige and power. So go read that now. Yeah. <laughs> Some other, that's my favorite reason to think about why the crime rate's not great. But I'm going to give some others, because I, just to know them. Crime rates are measured in a way that is entirely dependent on reporting and police reporting. So police activity, who decides to report to the police, and then finally, odd, not oddly, whether departments actually bother to submit their data to the FBI. What's called the Uniform Crime Reports was actually developed by the International Association of the Chiefs of Police in the 1920s when they felt that they had a hard time controlling the narrative on crime. 
and they graciously invited J. Edgar Hoover to be on their board. And then a few years later, they handed it over to him so that he could run the program through the FBI. You've probably also heard that the measure excludes violence committed by police and the entire prison bureaucracy, all violence within jail, detention, and prison walls. The DOJ's official estimate is that rape within prison is upwards of at least 216,000 a year. Uncounted also are the violations given the euphemisms of pat-down, strip search, and cavity search. And if we were looking to name these legal practices as crimes, we would have to call them sexual assault. Uncounted also is just incarceration, probably would have to be called kidnapping. The money bail system, which if we wanted to call it a crime, we would have to call it kidnapping and being held for ransom. Other forces, the Uniform Crime Report also excludes slow death, structurally induced but preventable sickness, sickness from contaminated water, air pollution that kills an estimated 350,000 per year, um, an order of magnitude way higher than the estimated 20,000 of homicides. This is not to mention the more than 600,000 deaths of opioid overdoses um, that were likely um, generated initially by the profit-seeking of Purdue Pharma. Now, now it feels weird because I know you like I got some of this for some of those, but I actually want to say a word where I'm just not really a fan of all of those kinds of explanations. You'll notice that all of these criticisms criticisms are about underreporting, undercounting, and the crimes of the greater scale. All of this lingering on the cusp of saying that the Sackler family and the gun peddlers and the Wall Street speculators all belong in jail. Okay. But what's wrong with that? We might actually describe this as a process of something I said a few minutes ago, which is taking a set of structural challenges and shrinking them down to fit the exact size and shape of a criminal trial. I'm not down with that calling everything a crime. I'm not down with supporting more money for schools because schools are so good at reducing crime. And for, late, for related reasons, I've always found it a little bit hard to stomach a claim that I have actually made many times, because it's a claim that circulates widely um, in, in the literature I read and amongst people doing the work. And the claim is this, police and prisons fail in reducing crime. And here I always want to ask the question, what if they succeeded? What if they could prove good return on investment? What if torture produced reliable and usable intelligence? What if the death penalty actually deterred crime? With this, I want to um, conclude with one quote from Golden Gulag, which you all need to read. So in this vein of asking, what, what is it we're willing to sacrifice for the crime rate? Gilmore writes, if the 20th century was the age of genocide on a planetary scale, then in order to avoid repeating history, we ought to prioritize coming to grips with dehumanization. Dehumanization names the deliberate as well as the mob-frenzied ideological displacements central to any group's ability to annihilate another in the name of territory, wealth, ethnicity, religion. Dehumanization is also a necessary factor in the acceptance that millions of people 
sometimes including oneself, should spend all part of their lives in cages. I'm prepared to stop. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.